All right. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I realize that I came up way too early for that bumper video because that thing went on for a while. All right, Acts 19. Uh, today we'll continue back in our sermon series in the book of, of Acts. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kenson. I serve as a pastor here, uh, a pastor here at Park. Uh, so grateful to be with you and to be able to open the word with you. And I really do hope that next week you guys are able to meet at four and have, able to have a potluck, man. I, I've, I've been able to have some potlucks in this place, and I've seen you guys host potlucks. It is something, okay? It is something. You invite your friends. It's pretty incredible the stuff that you guys bring out for stuff like that. So... Acts 19, let me read just some of our verses, and then we'll jump in, all right? So Acts 19 is a big chapter, so we won't be able to get through everything today, but we'll try to get through most of it, okay? So let's look specifically at verses 11 to 20 here. 11 to 20 here. Acts 19, verse 11 to 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Right now he's in the city of Ephesus, okay? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva We're doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, and and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, Augustine, a fourth century theologian, once said this. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies in itself, the latter in the Lord. Now, the tension of these two loves, the love of self and the love of God, is true of every heart, of every city, of every church, this battle that goes on. And we'll see this today within the church in Ephesus, that they started with a love for God, a deep love for God, but ended with a love for self. Now, something about the church in Ephesus is that we actually know more about this church than any other church in all the entire Bible. We know how it began. That's in Acts 19, where we're at today. We know how it was encouraged. That's the book of Ephesians. We know how it struggled. That's First and Second Timothy, First, Second, and Third John. And we also know how. It was dying. We see that in Revelation chapter 2, that it only took 40 years 
after the birth of this church where Jesus himself issues a threat to them and say that I'm going to close you down forever. Now what happened? What in the world happened? How could a church with so much potential that started off so strong drift so far away? Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, it's because you left your first love. This is that church, okay? Now, Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. Let me just show it to you real quickly in Revelation chapter 2. First, Jesus starts off, and he gives a commendation. We see this a lot in Revelation. So he starts with the commendation. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, so the church in Ephesus right now, this is straight A's. This is fantastic. This church is doctrinally sound. They are calling out false apostles. You don't call out false teaching unless you know true teaching. In addition, they're patiently enduring. This is, the church, this is a church that is under the threat of persecution. They're being tormented for their faith. And as a church, they did not back down. Let me tell you something. If I was coming to Ephesus and I was looking for a church to be a part of, this would be the church that I would be a part of. Sign me up. My kids are going to the children's ministry. This is where I want to be a member. They were believing right. They were behaving right. Yet with all these incredible things... What Jesus says next, this critique, undoes all of it. Revelation 2, verses 4 to 5. But, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you don't repent and fix this, I'm going to go ahead and take you out. Why? It's because they left their first love. Notice, they didn't lose their first love. They left it. They chose to do, they chose something else over loving Jesus. The word first here doesn't mean a sequence of events. First means priority. And in this case, they had placed doing things for Jesus over being with Jesus. That they loved the ministry, but didn't care much for the Messiah. They loved the truth, but they didn't care much for the giver of the truth. And this is what it means to leave your first love. It means that you have made an exchange in your heart. You've made an exchange that you've allowed something or someone else to take the place of God in your life. You know, when Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? In other words, what is the point of the Christian faith? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is just like it. You love your neighbor as yourself, and it's on these two commandments depend on the whole law and all the prophets. This is the point of the whole thing. It is love for God and love for others. And when a church loses this, it is a dying church. When a church has a knowledge of the character of God, but do not find themselves captivated by the beauty of God, they're not going to be around 
for very long. As we look at the church in Ephesus, their caution is our caution. If it could happen to the best of them, it could happen to us. And frankly, for some of us, their story is our story already. That somewhere down the line, we've made an exchange. That Jesus isn't as close to our hearts as he was before. Now, it wasn't always like this. There was a time where he didn't care who was preaching on Sunday. He didn't care if it was me or Rafe. You know, some of you guys are like, oh, it's Kenson again. Oh, I want to hear Pastor Rafe here, right? He didn't care. I just wanted to receive the word of God. He didn't care if the worship team was in tune. And they were, Jordan, you guys were in tune. You guys are doing great, okay? I was right next to the speakers. I heard everything, okay? So you didn't care because you just wanted to sing. You didn't care if the prayer meeting went overtime. You just wanted to commune with God. That's what you wanted to do. But over time, not overnight, over time, over time, the concerns, the worries, and the false loves of these world took your affections, and you made an exchange. Bible reading became a chore. It's not as easy to pray. Serving feels like a burden. Singing feels like a drag. And you're just going through the motions. You're believing right. You're behaving right, but Jesus is far from your heart. Is that your story? Jesus warns us, warns us and warns the church that this is not a sustainable and healthy place to be. So the question for us today is this, is what do you do when this happens? What do you do to recapture your first love? Jesus actually says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If you want to course correct from this heart position, go back to what you did at first. And what was that? It's right here in Acts chapter 19. Okay, so that's where we're at today. Now, once again, we don't have time to go into the entire chapter in depth, but let me just set the stage a little bit here, okay? Paul gets to Ephesus, and he's preaching the gospel. It says here that he spends three months preaching in the synagogue, but the people become stubborn in the synagogue, and they resist the message. So Paul moves to the Hall of Tyrannus, which is an open lecture area, and he stays there for two years. Now, in chapter 19, verse 10, it says this that Paul continued this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is amazing. Paul is in Ephesus. There is no sizable church there. There is no denomination. There is no church planting network. Paul is basically there with his small team. And after two years of faithful ministry, everyone heard the gospel in Asia, oh man, Park Community Church, may this be true of us, that because of our faithful ministry, all the residents of South Loop, University Village, Pilsen, Bronzeville would hear the word of God. So Paul here, he proclaims the gospel, and it was also accompanied with powerful works of the Spirit. They read in verse 11 that handkerchiefs and aprons were touching Paul, and it had healing power. People were being healed. Evil spirits were coming out. This was an incredible Holy Spirit movement. A revival was happening in Ephesus. Now, as this was happening, a group of Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, who was a high priest, sees this. 
and they want some of this action, that they want their exorcism to go to the next level. Now, just something about the city of Ephesus. It was, it was known amongst the Roman Empire to be considered the magic capital of the empire. So it wasn't uncommon to have magicians and sorcerers everywhere that for a price, if you paid them, they would give blessings and curses on your behalf. So this was a big business in Ephesus here. So it's not surprising to see these Jewish exorcists, itinerant exorcists roaming around. So these guys go up, the seven sons of Sceva, they go up to a demon-possessed man and say in verse 13, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The evil spirit hears this and says to these seven sons, okay, Jesus I know, Paul I know, because right now he is tearing up Asia with the gospel. Who are you again? You know, that, that is a total diss, okay, total diss. And you can imagine that the seven sons of Sceva, they're starting to worry because this should have worked, but it didn't. And then in verse 16 it says, And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered all of them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, now let me tell you something. When people get into fights, sometimes there can be debates on who won. There's no debate here, okay? If you go into a fight with your pants on and you leave with your pants off, you lost, okay? No one's going to be talking about that headlock that you put them in or that good swing you got in. If you came in, you know what? pants on and no pants on, you clearly lost, okay? So this is going on, and now a holy fear goes throughout all of Ephesus. The Holy Spirit is moving. Miracles are happening. False teachers are being embarrassed, and all of Asia is hearing the gospel. And the believers in Ephesus respond with incredible faith and devotion. And it's in this moment that Jesus points back in Revelation chapter 2 that if you want to recapture your love for me, do this. What do they do? Verses 17 to 20. This is it right here. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here are the three things we see from the believers in Ephesus. What did they do at first? This is what they did. First in verse 17, they extolled Jesus, extolled him. Verse 18, the second thing they did, they confessed and divulged their sins. And the third thing they did, Verse 19, they destroyed their idols. They extolled Jesus. They confessed and divulged their sins. They destroyed their idols. If you want to recapture your first love in Christ, do these things, okay? So first, they extolled Jesus. 
Extolled means to lift up or to praise. What this means is that they exalted Jesus above all. That unlike the seven sons of Sceva, Jesus was not some power to be tamed. He was a savior to be trusted in. That Jesus was not a name that you would use, but Jesus was a name that you would honor. That the believers in Ephesus knew that Jesus reigned supreme and was a gracious king, and they worshiped and extolled in light of that. Now, what we need to learn here, and it's a very important principle when it comes to worship, is that what you think about Jesus informs your worship of Jesus. You know, for example, instead of believing that Jesus delights in you, instead you believe that he's annoyed with you or he's too busy with you, you're not going to come to him. You're not going to pray to him. You won't extol him. If you believe that Jesus is your enemy, if you believe that he's trying to rob you and steal joy from you, that Christ is all about rules, 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 and rules, you're going to have a very hard time obeying him and extolling him. If you want to feed your affections, you do so with the facts about Jesus. That if you want to go back to your first love in Christ, remember the Jesus of the Bible. And it's when we do this, we will move past just knowing truths about Jesus, but to extolling Jesus in worship. Nothing will make you fall in love with Jesus again as quickly as remembering what he's done for you. That when you've messed up, remember that he still loves you. That when you were an enemy of God, he went to the cross for you. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because he has taken your condemnation. Remember that when you were dead, he gave you life. Remember that when you had a heart of stone, he gave you a heart of flesh. Remember when you had no eyes to see, remember he gave you sight. Remember that when you felt defeated, you are a conqueror because Jesus conquered the grave, sin, and Satan. And when you feel alone, remember that the son of the most high God, you are now united with him. If you want your affections to be stirred for Jesus, remember the gospel. Let me, let me just paint it in a more like tangible way. Now, I've shared this with you all before, you know, but my wife and I suffered a miscarriage many years ago, actually multiple miscarriages. It was a very, very hard season. And after losing my baby, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, my heart got very cold towards God, very cold. And just like the church in Ephesus in Revelation, I was going through the motion. You know, I've been doing the church thing for too long. I didn't know how to do anything else. So you just go through the motions. Yeah, I do my quiet times in the morning, sure. Yeah, I do ministry because it is my job. I've got to pay the bills, right? I say my prayers, but deep down, there was nothing here. And quite frankly, I felt that God had betrayed me and or hated me. You know, so often, can I just say that when we do fall out of love with Jesus, it is so easy to tell ourselves false narratives of who God is. And let me just say is that when you believe these false narratives, it will keep our hearts cold towards him. And when this tragedy happened, that's all I did. Is I wasn't telling myself the gospel. I was telling myself these false narratives. This is who God is. He hates me. He doesn't love me. I know scripture. I, went, I, went to, I spent like five years in seminary studying this stuff. I didn't care anymore. He clearly hates me. He clearly doesn't love me. So two weeks after the miscarriage, you know, come to church on Sunday. Actually, in this space right here, I was sitting right over there. I know exactly where I was sitting, sitting right on that spot right over there. So I was sitting here, and I really didn't want to be here. 
But you come to church, why? Because that's what good Christians do. So I go, and I'm there with my wife, and the very first song that they played from the stage was Blessed Be Your Name. Blessed Be Your Name. And right away, I was like, no way, God. No way. No way. And as soon as the melody was going, I knew the song. And when he started singing the lyrics, I could feel that God was getting my attention. He was trying to tell me, Kenson, man, I'm not far. I'm not far. And I could feel that he was melting my cold heart and reminding me of what was true. That the chorus of the song says, you gave and take away, you give and take away, you give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And as the truth of God's word was being sung, and tell me, let me tell you something, my wife and I could not sing. We, we were struggling so much, but as the congregation sang those words over us, God used the truth of the gospel to bring us back to our first love. That I was reminded again that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that things just didn't happen chaotically, that nothing has ever happened or will ever happen that happens outside of the power of God and of the love of God. And I could trust that. And I knew that my unborn son was safe in his arms. And I could rest. My heart could rest. And when my heart could rest, that's when I could begin to extol. Do you guys see how that works? See how that works? When our hearts grow cold towards Jesus, we have to remind ourselves of the truth of who Jesus is. We have to untell the false narratives. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. That is exactly how God begins to warm our hearts back to him. Here's the second thing that we see happen with these believers. We see them confessing and divulging their sins, okay? And this is how it works. Once we have a clear and compelling vision of Jesus, a grand vision of Jesus, we will confess our sins. That we realize that before a holy God, we are a sinner in need of grace. That we understand that our deeds are, are like filthy rags before him. So we confess and we do so trusting and knowing that he is a good and gracious Savior who has offered to pay the, for the penalty of our sins. Now this is really important because every time when someone talks about confession, it's so easy for us to think that this is something punitive, that this is a punishment, that God's going to scold us, God's going to put us in time out, that this is a bad thing. No, confession is not something that binds us. It's not something that shackles us. Unconfessed sin is what shackles us. It's what holds us, controls us, terrorizes us. But it's when we confess the chains are unshackled. Confession is not about being shamed. It's about being set free. It's about the prodigal son returning home after sinning his brains out and seeing his father run out to embrace him and love him because the son now understands his sins and the need for his father. Now notice here, though, that these believers didn't just confess their sins. It also says that they divulged their practices. Now, there's a difference between confessing and divulging. Confessing is acknowledging that you're wrong and your need for forgiveness. It's like going to a small group and saying, I'm really struggling. Can you pray for me? That's a good thing. We should do that. Divulging is no longer admitting that you're wrong and struggling, 
but now you share the dirty grossness of it. That you share in a way that makes you nervous. You share in a way that makes you sweat at nights like, man, I don't know if I can share this. this you know, if I share this, I might be rejected. If I share this, there might be real consequences to making and bringing this to light. That this is a level of transparency that leaves you so vulnerable because there is nowhere to hide. Let me just say, this is what is required to recapture your first love. You have to go to war with your sins. The believers in Ephesus confessed their sins to God and to one another, not leaving a single detail out because they would not let anything or anyone stand in the way of loving and following Jesus. And the reason that they could do this is because they believed the gospel. They believed that Jesus delighted in them. They believed that he loved them. He believed that he never, he believed that that he was calling them to himself. And it's with that gospel security we can confess freely. You know, and the way the verbs are written here indicates that these believers kept confessing and they kept divulging. And I love this because it means that they weren't pretending. They weren't playing the church game. They hadn't learned that when someone asks you how you're doing, you're actually not supposed to say, not good, I'm hurting, I'm angry. Instead, you're supposed to say, beyond blessed brother, beyond blessed sister, God is good. They hadn't learned how to do that yet. They hadn't learned that during prayer requests, you're actually supposed to gossip about the sins of someone else because God forbid that you would talk about your own sins. The Ephesian Christians hadn't learned how to play this church game. So when their lives were not lining up with God, they only knew how to do one thing, and that's to confess and divulge. Can I just say, some of us think that we can hide our sins from God. You can't. He sees everything. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus knows everything. And I'll I'll admit this. Confessing and divulging, it is hard. And we need to be discerning in who we share it with. But confessing and divulging is worth it. The lie that Satan wants to tell you is that if you confess your sin, people will be ashamed of you. Nobody will respect you. God will not approve of you. There will be a ton of fallout. Nothing will give Satan more joy than for you to keep your sin to yourself. Because if he can keep you accused, he can keep you unused. To think that hiding your sins is better than confessing it, those are lies from the pits of hell. This is why our hearts can grow cold towards God because you are harboring and hiding sins. It will separate you. That's what sin does. Sin creates distance. It separates you from God and your church family. Remember this. You can only be loved as much as you are known by others. And the sins that Jesus will cover are the sins you're willing to confess. Don't hide your sins. And here's the third thing we see these believers do. They destroyed their idols. Now what we see next here 
is that those who practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And the value of these books was close to $8 million in today's time. That is a lot of money. That the church in Ephesus was so in love with Jesus that they would never go back to what they knew would destroy them. That they didn't keep the books and keep these magic books in their bookshelves. They didn't try to resell it or justify having it around. They destroyed it. For many of these magicians, you have to keep this in mind, these magic books were their livelihood. This is how they made money. This is how they put food on the table. But Jesus was worth the sacrifice. And let me just say, there is a real cost in loving Jesus. Now, something I want to say real quick here, okay, that when we read a story like this, I want to let you know that I'm not telling you guys to start burning things, okay? That, man, you know, my iPhone is stumbling me. Burn it, you know? You know, I am consumed with my career. You know, burn my cubicle. You know, man, my kids are, 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 my kids are idols in my life. You know, burn it, okay? No, okay, no, no, okay? The root issue is not your phone, it's not your career, it's not your kids. It's your heart, okay? The exhortation here is not to burn. The exhortation is to be radical and costly in fighting your sin. These former magicians took radical steps to weed out sin from their lives, and they wanted to make sure that they did not leave any room to be tempted to fall back to their own lives, so they destroyed it. They didn't give it away. They didn't resell it. It was never an option. You can hear Judas Iscariot say, like, well, just resell the books, get the money back, you know, and build up the church. That was never an option because for these books to remain in circulation would mean that the lives of the demons, of devils, of Satan, whatever, would just keep circulating all over the place. The only news we're supposed to spread as Christ followers is good news. So they burned it all. Now for many of us, the reason we have abandoned our first love is because we have tolerated sin. Oh, you know, just a little bit of nudity here. You know, everyone's watching it. It's, 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 it's no biggie. Yeah, you know, I know I'm neglecting my family for work, but, you know, but my work is putting food on the table. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Everyone's doing it, and God's, God's going to forgive. You know, A.W. Tozer once said this. Much of our difficulty in life stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. When these believers knew that their practices did not line up with God's heart, they adjusted their lives and got rid of everything that wasn't glorifying to God. These Ephesian believers had a new affection, they had a new love for Jesus, and they did not want to go back to their old way of life. And this is what the principle of burning those books were all about. It represented their old lives. They were burning bridges to their old selves. That their actions shouted to everybody who was watching that Jesus was more valuable to them than any gods, any power, any comfort, any false source of trust, any kind of money. They were willing to do all of this even at a great cost because they knew that whatever they were giving up was nothing compared to what they had in Christ. So friends, here we have it. This is what it looks like to recapture our first love. It's to have a passionate adoration for Jesus. That's where it begins. It's to ask God to open up our hearts and minds through his word so that we would see clearly who Jesus is and what he's done for us. 
And to cultivate that love, to grow that love, we do so by confessing and divulging our sins to God and to others, that there is no more hiding, there is no more pretending, and we make radical and costly adjustments to our lives, that we welcome accountability. We say no to things that can lead us to sin, that we burn bridges to our old self and sinful triggers. This is the cost. This is what it's going to take for us to recapture our first love. Now, I wish I had time to go into the rest of the chapter in depth, but I don't. But I do want to quickly show you kind of what happens next as a testament of what God can do when Jesus is our first love. Let me just show you verses 23 to 27 here and what happens here. And that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only to this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So this is what's happening here. People are now coming to Jesus in large numbers. They are destroying all their little idols that they have, and it is killing the local economy. That Ephesus held the temple of Artemis, the biggest of all temples across the Roman world. And throughout the year, there would be numerous festivals where people from all around the world would come to celebrate and spend a ton of money in Ephesus. Well, Paul is now going around converting people to Jesus, pointing to Artemis and saying that she is a false god, that any god that you need to make with your hands is not God at all. And a silversmith, Demetrius here, he, he makes these little replicas of Artemis. He gathers a crowd and they go into a frenzy because they believe that Paul is destroying the great city of Ephesus and the great temple of Artemis because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's many things to talk about here. This is the one thing I want to share with you. Transformed lives, transformed a city. When the love of Jesus took hold of the hearts of these believers, it could not be contained in these four walls. Can you just imagine this happening in Chicago, South Loop, Bridgeport, Hyde Park, where people are exalting Jesus, confessing sins, and destroying idols, and it starts to shape the city in terms of economics and culture? Can you imagine the people are being so transformed by the love of Jesus that everyone in Chicago stops slandering and boasting, and Twitter and Facebook and all of social media will go inactive because of that? Can you imagine people being so transformed by the love of Jesus that police departments, state attorney's offices, you know, the prisons would all have to downsize because there's actually peace on our streets. Can you imagine people being so transformed by the love of Jesus that the people who are making money off of sinful activities, businesses like the adult industry would cave in on themselves, that there would be no more clients, no more people to work the cameras, no more billboards on the highways. How amazing would it be for the Spirit of God to bring about such a revival in such a way that there is no way for those who make gain off of the oppressed and marginalized to make a single dollar? Can I just say, it happened in Ephesus, it can happen today 
when Christ is our first love. Amen? Amen. Friends, the church of Ephesus is a warning to us because a church that started strong, had the right beliefs and behaviors, lost its way, and Jesus was not enough. What happened to them can happen to us. But let me also say that the church in Ephesus is an encouragement to us because if we let the Holy Spirit correct us and redirect our affections towards Jesus, we will worship God freely, we will confess and divulge our sins regularly, and we will abandon our idols fully, and we will see our city transformed. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, I'm reminded of 1 John 4.19 that we love because you first loved us. Father, help us to be reminded again that God, that even when our hearts can wander, that even when our hearts can grow cold, Father, you are no more than a prayer away. You are no more than a confession away. That, Father, you are the prodigal son's father. You're awaiting to receive us and to love us. So, Father, for any of us here today that feels separated from you, that feels condemned, that feels guilty, that feels shame, Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, draw us back to yourself? And, God, I pray for us as a church, as Park Community Church, as South Loop Church here, that, God, yes, Lord, help us to believe the right things. God, help us to do the right things. But, Father, would you help us, most importantly, to hold on to our first love, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be known for that. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.